After six generations, my guest is taking his family's wines biodynamic. Find out more in this episode of The Honest Pour. Welcome to The Honest Pour with John Lennart, where we go beyond the bottle to connect you with the people and places that make each wine so unique. Alto Adige, in Italy's northernmost reaches, is an often overlooked wine-producing area. Producing a wide range of grapes, from fruity Pinot Bianco to earthy Sylvaner, the region gets its influence from both Italy and its northern neighbors, Austria and Germany. Clemens Legator of Eloise Legator joined me at the Gage, 24 South Michigan Avenue in Chicago. Clemens is the sixth generation of his family making wines in Alto Adige, and we talked about and tasted their intriguing wines. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I'm very glad to be here. Let's talk a little bit about Alto Adige. Where exactly is it, and what makes it a unique growing region? <laughs> Alto Adige is actually the most northern region in Italy. It's a quite fun place because it's actually 100 years ago it was part of uh, Austria. So, I mean, you know that Italy has completely a huge diversity of different regions. I mean, Piemonte is completely different to to Sicily or, or, or Tuscany. And then there's a small place, it's one of the smallest wine-growing region, actually, Alto Adige, in a very northern part, and next to, right next to the border to Switzerland and Austria. And actually, the region is called also Südtirol in German. And uh, that's, that's why, because uh, the region was actually 100 years ago part of Austria. In the First World War, uh, Austria lost the war, and Italy won the war, at least they flipped between the war, in the middle of the, of, of the war, and then they cut it, Tyrol, this very famous Austrian region, into two pieces and gave the southern part, so Sud Tyrol, South Tyrol, to Italy. And so now it's a very interesting uh, region, actually, because it's this melting pot of two different cultures. It's like you have this, yeah, the, the Italian influence, uh, you have the Italian language, you have the Italian uh, culture, like Italian food. But on the other side, you have also this very nice Austrian influence, that nice, uh, this Austrian culture we have. We do speak German. Actually, uh, nowadays, still 70% of people do speak German. And, and then you have also the German, uh, the Austrian food, like uh, Schlutzkapfen or Knödel or, or Wiener Schnitzel. So these are, it's this beautiful area in the middle of the Dolomites, in the middle of the Alps, right up in the north, so where you have this mixture of two cultures. And what are the classic varietals being grown in the region? So it's funny because actually uh, Alto Anige not a long time ago was known actually as a red wine region. No? And we planted about 40 years ago. It was planted a lot with uh, Schiava. Schiava is this indigenous grape vial, uh, medium body, nice freshness. So just 40 years ago, my father and friends of him started to take out, dig out a little bit of these uh, Schiava of the red grape vial and plant much more uh, white wine grape vial because Alto Adige is um, it's one of the warmest. It has really warm climate during the days. So Bolzano, the main town in Alto Adige, is really like has this. It's one of the five hottest cities in, in Italy, actually, compared to, to Palermo, to Rome, um, and other cities. But also, it gets, it's getting this influence from the mountains. So it's really cool night. So at around six, seven, eight p.m., the really the temperature drops. And that's why the region is actually has perfect condition also for white wines. And that's why my father and others started 40 years ago to plant uh, white grape vials like Pinot Grigio, like Pinot Bianco, Chardonnay. But there's also Gewürztraminer, you know, there's Sauvignon, there's uh, Müller Thurgau, there's a little bit of Riesling, uh, Kerner. And uh, so nowadays, actually, it's known as um, one of the best white wine regions in Italy. 
having also certain certain red grape varietals, like uh, as I mentioned before, Nosgava Lagrine, which is an, another indigenous grape varietal, or Cap Franc, Cap uh, Sauvignon, or Merlot Pinot Noir, would has a great potential actually there as well. So a lot of varietals for Excellent. one area, Enormous, particularly yeah. for Italy, where it seems to be just a couple different varietals per area. In Alto Adige, there's this well, vast. I, uh, I think it's that's the beauty of about Italy. It, it's right that every single region has its own uh, small varietals, but that's the beauty about it that uh, it's so diverse. The whole whole region. I mean, not even by. Uh, talking about culture, but also about wine varietals. I mean, Piemonte has its own indigenous grape varietal. Um, Sicily has its own grape varietal. Puglia has its own grape, uh, indigenous grape varietal. And the same with Alto Anige. And, and yeah, that, that's true that there are many international grape varietals in Alto Anige as well. Um, but they have a certain history there. Like uh, Chardonnay, for example, was planted since uh, two, 200 years already, you know. Uh, the same with Pinot Grigio, the same with uh, other grape varieties. No? Yeah, you're sixth generation in your family in, in, in the winery. Give me a brief history of Alois Legator. So our winery started in 1823 with my great-great-great-grandfather, uh, also Alois Legator. When, when he started to trade at the very first beginning, well, his father started trading wine, and then he started to plant the first vines in, in Antoinette. And so nowadays it's run by my father and me in fifth and sixth generation. So it's a quite a long time. We are like in the very southern part of Antoinette. So right next to, to the language border, actually, to the rest of Italy. No? Uh, yeah, it's, it's, um, we have about 50 hectares, about 125 acres of family-owned vineyards where we, that we converted uh, in 2004 to biodynamics. Also this beautiful collaborations with small farmers in all over the area, all over the region, uh, Alto Anice. Um, think of that, uh, the average of one farmer in Alto Anice who owns vineyards is about 2.5 acres, so quite small, and not everyone produces its own wine, but they rather prefer to uh, do the whole viticulture, the work in the vit- farming, but then selling the grapes to other neighbors. And these are the beautiful old tradition that we these are contracts and they're, they're not written down, but they're only by shaking their hands. No? And we get together with these farmers, about 90s, what we, we're working with, uh, once or more often a year. But once a year we discuss about the price and about after the harvest. Sit, we sit together, talk about the price, talk about the quantities, talk about uh, if we were happy, happy with the year or not. And then you decide every time, every year again, uh, over and over again, if you go on with the collaboration for another year or not. And so we have this collaboration with 90 different farmers in all over the area and uh, from about 250 acres. So I would say um, the total production would be from 350 acres. Okay. Yeah. Okay. You were brought up around wine, obviously, with generations of your family in the wine business, but it wasn't your first calling. Tell me how you got into wine that's business. Right. That's right. You know that my, my parents, the good thing, would, oh, I'm very happy about it. I mean, of course, I grew up with it, but they never gave me the impression to, that I have to run the, the winery, the family winery. I mean, even if the tradition is so long, and they always said uh, to, to us kids, like also my, to my sisters, do whatever you feel like, do whatever you want to experience, or go your own path. And if you like, you come back and, and uh, start working for the winery. And uh, and that's actually what I did at the beginning, because I was in school. I was I really loved philosophy and history and art, art. So and that's why I, 
I um, decided at the very beginning to study sociology, so com- something completely different, but had nothing to do with wine. At the very end of the studies of the university, I started to work for our uh, importer in Switzerland and came back to this topic, came back to have the bas- passion about wine. And uh, afterwards, was, I started reading also about Rudolf Stein, the founder of Biodynamics. So I get to know about a little bit this aspect, farming in a very sustainable way, a uh, very um, traditional way, actually. This was actually a kickoff during my sociology study, working for the importer and reading all this stuff that I decided afterwards to to go to Geisenheim, to this viticulture school near Wiesbaden and, and Frankfurt in, in Germany, studying yeah, viticulture. And then afterwards I was heading to Burgundy, studying their uh, winemaking or enology. And, uh, but there I decided to quit the university and rather preferred work for winery, also and for, for biodynamic winery. And then afterwards I went uh, to New York, having a, just a short, doing just a short interview, internship and our distributor, to get to know a little bit the market, to get in contact with the wine market and especially also the U.S. market, how it works. And I saw the difficulties and how big the competition is, actually. And, and uh, yeah, it was good. Good, to, good um, internship, a good experience. And then the last two years I've been in Luxembourg. Again, was an experience and had nothing or very little to do with wine. It was for a cooperative, a food cooperative, uh, actually a biodynamic or organic food cooperative in Luxembourg I was working with because I was, I was interested to get to know a little bit more the, the holistic view of, of agriculture, not only viticulture, but also how in general organic or biodynamic agriculture would work. And then, yeah, last year I joined the company and now uh, I'm happy. <laughs> That's great. You know, you came home after bringing these ideas of sustainability and biodynamic uh, agriculture and viticulture with you. What, what did your dad think of this when he said, you know what, we're going biodynamic? Well, actually, it, was, it, was, it wasn't me just starting with biodynamics. I mean, already my grandmother started with biodynamics. Or let's say she was farming um, her garden in a, very, in a biodynamic way. So she was pruning when the moon was in a certain position, and she was, uh, was she uh, burying the cow horn and all. Yeah, of absolutely, that? absolutely, absolutely. She was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, only for her garden, no, her house garden. And we grew up with this, and my father grew up with this certain biodynamic thinking. And and uh, so we already in the nine, in the mid of nineties in the in the family vineyard or family in the family vineyards, we started to try out certain certain biodynamic uh, methods and. Honestly, it wasn't a huge success because if you work in the way we're always working and on the other side you're trying to do experiments with biodynamics, it, won't, it, would, it wouldn't work because you need really to have to put the focus on it because it's like getting rid of everything you've done before and thinking uh, uh, winemaking or thinking it from another perspective. But anyway, we did this first experiment in the mid-90s and a couple of years afterwards in 2004... Already my father converted all the 120 acres slowly. Uh, he started at least with the, uh, the 120 acres to, to biodynamic. Me coming back was actually not that I brought something new in the winery, but it was more yeah, something f- maybe from an other's perspectives again. And, and I mean, you're not getting biodynamic from one day to the other. It's always a process and it's certain you need always to develop yourself. And that's what we also try to do now, going on and and thinking biodynamically or the biodynamics from a different perspective. Now, it's not just bringing up preparation or, 
or, or digging the cow horns in the soil, but it's, it's now what we started three years ago, this cooperation with, with uh, dairy farmers, for example, now that um, they have nothing to do with wine, but we, these are dairy farmers that are in the mountains, for example, in the Alps, and uh, we take the, their cows, for example, or we, let's say we rent the cows for, for winter time, and we bring them down in the valley in our vineyards where the climate is much more warmer, and where they find grass even during the winter time, and they eat the whole grass. They, it's a certain organic fertilizer because we don't use any chemical fertilizer and we don't use any pesticides and herbicides. So it's, they're going to use a certain organic fertilizer. And then after, after the winter time and in springtime, when the, when, the, uh, when the plants start shooting again, we bring them up again in the mountains. And so it's a win-win situation for us, but also for, for the dairy farmer, because he slowly, slowly he can save money during the winter time because he doesn't need to, to buy any, any food for the cows. And so slowly, slowly he can grow. And that's, that's a little bit the thing what we are starting to do in the last, in the recent years, in the last years, to really think biodynamic as the vision of biodynamic is just having or trying to build up this holistic and close farm, but we just can't put out the vines and put in cows because if not we would be um, broken after two, sure. two, two years but, and it's, it's not the point I mean it's still winemaking is still we know and what we are going to do in the next future year but it's trying to go or start this certain collaborationships and trying to yeah creating this uh, closed farm in a, in a larger, on a larger scale and what have the results been? extremely good I mean I have to admit that uh, the results that we have would have never expected. Talking just now from not only by, from the biodynamics, but just from this collaboration we have with this dairy farmer, is that all of a sudden we had like before we had problems with a certain plant under underneath the vines. It was massive. It was like it was really uh, dominating. And um, all of a sudden, having the cows in the winter in the, in the vineyards after certain uh, years, we had much more different. Flowers, different plants. There was a certain diversity. There was I don't know how. We would have. I have no idea. I have no explanation for that. But really interesting to see the diversity growing, using or bringing in animals in the vineyards, and not only having this monoculture uh, of vines. No. When you walk the vineyards, do they feel different? Is there a different vibe than there was in the vineyard? You know, I uh, I was in a vineyard in. Um Sonoma County that's about just changed over to biodynamics and the woman touring us through said in the past five years you can now feel that our vineyard is alive compared to the vineyard next door that's not practicing biodynamics you just feel the life in the vineyard going through the vineyards I see a huge difference and especially after like as you said after like four or five years you see you start seeing this this differences and you see also how how the, the vines start reacting to certain difficult conditions. Like if it rains, then the vines start being much more, yeah, certain self-protection. And it's, that's true. I mean, also that in the, in the biodynamics, in the middle of the rows, you don't, if, as you don't use any herbicides anymore, you try to bring certain seeds out, certain flowers in the middle of the rows. So, of course, there's a huge living life going on, actually, no? And finally, you have butterflies back again. I mean, or bees back again. No, I mean the bees wouldn't be attracted to to vines because the flowering or the blossom of the of the vine is quite unattractive for for bees. But finally, having other plants in the middle of the rows, you create a certain 
diversity, you create a certain habitus for these different insects, not only outside, but also in the soil. And I would say definitely there's another life going on in, in vineyards. What wines do you make? We have about 75% uh, white wine. So the most important wines are for sure Pinot Grigio, Pinot Bianco, Chardonnay. There's Gewürztraminer, uh, there's Müller Thurgau. I think in Antoine have extremely beautiful potential for Pinot Noir as, grape, as red grape vital because in the Dolomites we have this... The Dolomites, you have to think about it, were hundreds of hundreds, millions of, millions of years. It was all flooded by a sea. And now through, um, through, through the last millions of hundreds, millions of years, there were these mountains uh, that were built up through these uh, fossils. No? And now it's full of chalk, full of limestone. And that's a, that's a perfect soil, actually, for Pinot Noir. And, even, and now also the climate is great because also even though we have quite warm days, we are getting this influence from the mountains, from the Dolomites. In the, very, in the afternoon already it starts chilling, the cooling down, chills down, and then uh, you get a certain balance to the Pinot Noir. You get a certain freshness to the Pinot Noir, a certain f- feminine character, what we are always aiming for also for the Pinot Noir. We don't want to... We don't, or we in our family winery don't try to make the Pinot Noirs as, as fresh, uh, flushy, uh, fruity, or, or do you say fresh fruit? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or, or um, overpowering, but they always should be more in the elegance, more in the delicate. The finesse is extremely important. And I think you have certain good conditions for, for Pinot Noir, absolutely. And then, as I said, you have uh, indigenous grape vines like Schiava, Lagrine, but also Cabernet. Uh, it depends. That's the beauty about Alto Anager, that you have so many different soil types, so many different exposures, so many different altitudes. I mean, grape uh, vineyards are going from starting at 250 meters, so about 600 feet, and going up to, um, I don't know, 1,300 meters, so about 3,000 3, feet. feet. So um, the diversity is, is big. As, and that's one of the biggest advantages we have working with these small farmers because then we have the property, or our vineyards, the, the majority, let's say, in the southern parts of Alto Alice. But through these collaborations with, uh, with these farmers, we can really go to more northern parts or more western parts or higher altitudes and find the right spot for the right grape vines. For example, Müller Thurgau. Is um, it's a grapevine that it's grown in a certain reach in a certain area. No, we don't have any vineyards there, but we can. We have fantastic uh, these old partners that they have their vineyard there, and they giving us their their grapes. So, trying to find the right spot for the right grapevine or Sauvignon, for example. No, instead of Sauvignon, always prefers you a certain. Sauvignon? No, Sauvignon, 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 Blanc. Sauvignon Blanc, sorry. So Sauvignon, for example, always, instead of preferring the limestone, it always goes better on the porphyry, volcanic porphyry. So we have a spot in, in our area in Alto Alice uh, called Terlano as well, as a small uh, area that uh, is very famous for the Sauvignon Blanc. So because it has this soil type, so trying to go there, finding partners, finding for small farmers um, who are planting this certain grape and selling us. They're the fruit that they have very had. Let's taste some wine. Let's taste some wine, yeah, absolutely. Start with the Pinot Bianco. So the Pinot Bianco is called um, Habale. So this uh, first wine we try is uh, Habale um, from the Terroir Selection. So it's a, it's a vineyard um, on a high-altitude vineyard, quite high-altitude vineyard, about 500 meters, so about 1,600 feet high. And that's what's so special about the Pinot Bianco in Alto Anice. We... Um, I mean, you probably know Pinot Bianco from Alsace and other 
areas from France or also from the northern parts of Italy, like Lombardy or Friuli. But the difference in, in um, Atuanage is that since ever, uh, we always tried to find very high-quality vineyards uh, where we can plant this grapevine. And many other regions, like it's, the Pinot Bianco is seen as like a medium quality or like mm-hmm. a second quality uh, uh, wine. But I think um, the beauty about it is if you're going higher up, uh, the Pinot Bianco doesn't have this aromatics like a Gewürztraminer right. or Riesling, but it has this beautiful uh, structure, this beautiful palate, this beautiful fresh crisp has, yeah, structure. There's a citrus and then a little bit of kind of stone fruit, mm-hmm. good minerality, great acid. Actually, in a little teeny bit, I just noticed, kind of almost like that, very, it's very late in the back, uh, a little bit of that kind of petrol, like Riesling gets. Yeah. Just a yeah. little teeny that's bit right. of that. Yeah, that's true. Oh, it's a nice wine, good food wine. Thank you, yeah. It's, that, that's, that's a good thing about the, the Pinot Bianco. It's a really good, nice uh, food wine, actually. It's period. And that's what, actually, in general, what we're always trying to do with the wines. We never want to make this full-bodied, too full-bodied wines. They always should have a certain freshness, a certain acidity that you can pair them very well with, with food, actually. So the second wine will be the Porra. Porra is a Pinot Grigio, 2014. Also terroir selection. It's landed more in the valley, so about lower vineyards, because the Pinot Grigio always needs a certain warmer climate to get a certain, a little bit of ripeness. Also 100% uh, limestone. And the thing what we do here is the half of it we keep in stainless steel, where it ferments and stays on the yeast in stainless steel, and the other half we keep on the uh, large cast. That's a great expression of what, what, what Pinot Grigio can be. First of all, it starts off, it's got that... It's got that silvery color that Pinot Grigio always has, and it's really, really nice. But there's a concentration to the to the kind of gold. Mm. It's like gold and silver together yeah, in yeah. the glass. Well, that's that's a, maybe that's a pity a little bit that Pinot Grigio is known as a little bit sometimes a little so a little bit watery or mm-hmm. or a, a neutral uh, grape valve. But I think if you do it right, and then sometimes also extending a little bit the skin contact or. You can have beautiful you have a skin contact on this. With on this uh, 2014, not on 2015, we will. But it, we don't release it. For, in, we will release it in a couple of months. This not, is a, a terrific now, example of Pinot Grigio. Um, but it can be so. Um, it can be a very interesting grape valve. It, it is a very interesting grape valve, from in my point of view. You just need a certain condition, a certain limestone, that you get a certain expression of minerality. Definite minerality yeah. and the, the little bit of wood has just. Yeah. Gives it a little bit of backbone, a little bit of structure at the end. What's the retail price on this? Poor is about twenty-five. Delicious wine for for that. Thanks a lot. For, especially for Thank the price you, you, know, you could you could do a, you could certainly do a lot worse <laughs> for twenty-four bucks a bottle when it comes to Pinot Grigio. That's <laughs> that, that's a great wine. So the next wine is going to be our Chardonnay Levengang. What is a hundred percent Chardonnay? It's called Löwengang. Löwengang is the name of the estate where our cellar is, or where the, the whole building actually is, an estate from the 15th century. Löwengang means, and here you see again the German or the Austrian influence, Löwengang uh, is, means lion's walk. Löwe is the lion, and Gang is the walk, actually. Vintage is 2012. It's a Chardonnay that we... It was actually the first um, white wine from out of Antoinette that was... Um, had an international reputation as uh, my father was a good friend of Robert Mondavi and um, when Robert Mondavi came once to Alto Alger they wanted to build up a joint venture what at the end never happened but 
anyway, so Robert Mondavi was, we were actually using only large cask for, for Chardonnay. And then Robert Mondavi had discussions with my father, and my father said, look, um, large cask is the best way to, to vinify our Chardonnay here. And then Robert Mondavi questioned it and said, why, you never did some... Exper- you, never did some, you never tried barrels. And so this was the uh, first time that my father actually, knowing it from Burgundy, where, where, we're used to, where we're used to it, and so he started to try barrels and mainly using, um, mainly using old barrels, uh, used barrels, so we did barrels for the certain structure, for the soft tenants, but we always want to re- reduce the oakiness. Always needs to have a certain savory and and, this um, is definitely a savory Chardonnay. Um, it, it's certainly not California Chardonnay. Very, very savory. Nice apple flavor. Great minerality. Great minerality of that wine. That's, that's important. That's that's what you really like like about um, the Chardonnays or also the Pinot Grigio in in Alto that they have the conditions to get this. I think the retail price is about forty eight. So let's change and do the rosé. Rosé season, everyone's going crazy like drinking rosé yeah. right now. <laughs> now it's no, no longer season, now it's year round. Everyone wants rosé year round. <laughs> really? Yeah. So, this actually is a, a, a good rosé for the whole year because, it's, as you can see already, uh, it's a little bit darker colored, more darker, like darker colored than many others. You're pretty extracted, yeah. Um, yeah, the reason why is because it's a La, La Grain rosé. La Grain is this indigenous grape vine. La Grain has a really dark color, uh, naturally, even though if you just keep this rosé or these grapes or the, the must just in a short time on the skin, it already gives a certain color to the wine. And that's why it's a little bit dark colored or darker colored than maybe it's not salmon. Mm-hmm. But it's a very interesting uh, wine because it's, Lagrine also has also, always this a little bit higher acidity uh, compared to Cap or Merlot. And that gives the certain freshness again to the wine. Because it's uh, an indigenous grape, was rosé traditionally made from Lagrine, or is this something new that's being? No, this is like this is actually there are two ways of making. It has a certain tradition, a very long tradition actually to make Lagrine Kretza, what in, what is not nothing else than Lagrine rosé, but we call it Lagrine Kretza. But it's a very long tradition to very very old tradition to make rosé out of Lagrine. Pretty floral smell, great texture. Next, actually, just was just released, 2015. Great kind of fresh strawberry, but it's um, not playful. It's a little more, more serious about itself than some rosés can be kind of just fruity and playful. And this, there's that structure, there's that acidity and that minerality that, that, that gives it structure, and it's a little more serious rosé. Thank you very much. Yeah, no, in a good way. I don't, know, I don't know if you think that's bad. No, no, I, I think, think that's in a good way. I always don't want to have much more serious wines than just... Yeah. Um, I mean, they need a certain character. And I mean, you could certainly be very being happy on a nice summer day with that on your porch. Absolutely. It's a little more than that. That's the point about this rosé. I mean, it has a serious, certain yeah, um, character, but it's not just... Yeah. Great. Well. <laughs> we brought a lot of wines to taste. What's next? <laughs> the, next is, the next, actually, is a Lagrine, but another rosé, but a, a, a red Lagrine. Um, Lagrine, again, the same grape bottle. It's a Reserva, 2012. Because for me, Lagrine is, as I said before, now it has always a little bit this high acidity. It has, um, if it's settled down a little bit, very smooth tannins. But at the very beginning, it can be very rough. It can be very poor, difficult also. And that's why we always decide, or we we love a little bit more the Lagrine when it's a little bit more settled down, aged. Mm-hmm. That's why the 
current release actually is 2012. Yeah, this, is the, this is the Conus, yeah. That, sorry, uh, that's a, <laughs> the name is Conus uh, from this Lagrine. Because interestingly, normally Lagrine is planted in very hot areas in on sandy soil. What we did here, instead of planting in, in Bolzano, this home, this main town in Alto Adige, we planted it in in southern part, where we instead of sandy soil, we have limestone and a little bit cooler climate. And the interesting thing is that it keeps, for sure, the characteristics of Lagrine, but it changes a little bit. It loses a little bit this um, dirtiness that Lagrine can have. It's got a super earthy nose. That's that's a typical thing about Lagrine. Very earthy. And interestingly, it's, um, Lagrine is always related. Oh, it's related to Syrah. So Syrah mm-hmm. is about the cousin, and the father of Lagrine is Teroldego, what you may know from Trentino. Mm-hmm. Good acid, good good structure. A little bit, a little bit, a little bit tannin, huh? Yeah, a little tannin. Still. And how does the grain age? Ah, I would say that's 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 uh, interesting because mm-hmm. with the with the component, like with the characteristics, like having high acidity and also some tannins, you would think of Lagrine aging like 20, 30 years. Interestingly, is that Lagrine? I would say the peak it has about five to ten years. I always love it when it's like ten years old. It's fantastic. But then slowly, slowly can can drop. I would say about yeah between five and fifteen years, right. which is a good time. I mean, well, absolutely, not that's, that's, yeah, absolutely. Why do we have to wait twenty years to drink our wine? Not everyone <laughs> is made for age. <laughs> and what's this? That's the Krafus, Krafus um, two thousand ten, the vintage. Krafus, it's a Pinot Noir. Uh, it's a it's a farm wine, so from the uh, one of our Grand Cru's, single vineyard, owned by my grandfather actually, but the father of my mother. It actually was the last family-owned vineyard we converted to biodynamics in 2013 because he always said uh, he was he was very hard to convince about biodynamics. Uh, I mean, he's a lawyer. He never really worked in a, in a vineyard, but at least not in this vineyard so much uh, in the last years. And so he was really hard to convince at his age because he always said, leave me alone with, with biodynamics. You can do it uh, after me. But uh, finally in 2013, we convinced him and we're happy that nowadays every single family-owned vineyard is uh, biodynamic converted. And um, so it's a Pinot Noir that is, again, grown on a very nice limestone. But also here, I think you can see that um, it's a Pinot Noir from a northern part of Italy. It's not a Pinot Noir from where you have this, again, this flashy, fruity, but it's, it's much more, or what we aim for is having much more feminine character, actually. It's definitely uh, that not, not that voluptuous, in-your-face fruit. That is, uh, it's, it's all more integrated. It's fresh cherry is there, but then it gives them the kind of leather and spice box, and again, the minerality is really elevated. It's also... Um, we keep it about 12 or 15 months in the, in barrel and then a couple of years bottle aged. And when are we using barrels? Same as with the Chardonnay Löwinger, we always try to reduce the new oak. Um, so it gets a certain spice in it, of course, from the barrels. But again, we need it for the soft tannins, for the structure, to soften up the wine, to, ru- to, the wine, to round it up around it, but not to really make it too okay. And that's what we are. You're, looking for. You're making a lot of wine. You're that's making true. a lot of different wines. Yeah, that's true. But you're making them <laughs> with sort of a small production sensibility and care. How do, you, how do you maintain that? I think the most important thing is um, having good people working with you. And that's for sure. I mean, changing to biodynamics, you can do it, you know. I mean, 
if you would work by yourself in the vineyard. Easy. But if you have a certain size, I mean, and um, having we have 50 people working with us, the hardest thing for sure is to motivate and to convince people. The same thing we see when we're trying to convince our farmers. And I think that's, that's the point about it. Uh, trying to have really, really good persons working with you, understanding and how, that they, they always need to understand. Uh, first of all, they want, need to know the values of the winery, the goals and the visions. Then you always need persons that having having certain similar visions and aiming the certain similar goals. And I think that's a little bit the, the biggest challenge we we're facing. It's not many people always say, yeah, I mean, changing to biodynamics or not using any herbicides or not pesticides or not using any chemical fertilizer that the plant actually would have difficulties. In my opinion, that's um, that's completely not true. It's always, I mean, the plant gets used to it immediately after, as I said, after four or five years, you already see the difference. It's the hardest thing to convince us, or the harder thing to get, not only convinced, but the nose to deal with it, is the human being. Good farming, good team, good wine. That's the, that's the point, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we didn't talk about production and pricing on a few of these. The Le right. Rosé, what's the price on that? The Le Grand Rosé is about 18 uh, 18, okay. $18, yeah. It's well-priced. And the Cornus La is about uh, 30 And uh, Krafus Pinot Noir is about 50 So all reasonably priced. Uh, reasonable $50. But in the grand scheme of the world of Pinot Noir, $50 Pinot Noir isn't ridiculous. Um, all well-priced wines. They're really high quality. Thanks for joining me. Cummins Legator of Eloise Legator. While you're a large production wine, sort of a large production winery, your wines, like I said, are made with a small production attention to detail and sensibility. Thank you very much, John. John, it was a great pleasure being here and talk a little bit about the wines and discuss with you about the winery. For John's tasting notes on the wines from this episode, go to www.thehonestpoorpod.com. Make sure you catch every episode by subscribing to The Honest Pour with John Lennart at iTunes, Stitcher, or the Google Play Store. Also, be sure to like us on Facebook at The Honest Pour with John Lennart and follow us on Twitter at The Honest Pour. This has been The Honest Pour with John Lennart. Music by Kevin McLeod.